Hello everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host Cooper Wilhelm and I'm so glad you are joining me today for my conversation with Hector Salva. It's a long interview so I'm going to try to keep the introduction very short. Suffice to say, after a beginning that includes a lot of introductory, general, foundational material about what a spiritismo is, how it is different from other things, we eventually wrap up the 90 or so minutes with a conversation about the ethics of doing therapy on a demon against its will. So the river is long, but it is also winding and it does form a delta before it hits the sea. Very exciting. After that, also, stick around, because I'm going to throw in a little snippet of my conversation with Al Cummins about his new book that I am going to put up in full behind the Patreon. So please enjoy my conversation with Hector, and then uh, just a little bit of my talk with Al. Why this book and why now? Well, I've been wanting to write this book for quite some time. People have actually been asking me to write this book since 98. And yeah, since 1998. So I basically, the tradition itself is fading. It's pretty much really, really faded out. And so one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to get this information out there before it totally faded out. And secondly, now was also the time because I had a connection with the publisher. I had written another book and it was just, you know, a lot easier. Publishers make it easier and more difficult. You know, everything has its pros and cons. Yeah. Why do you, uh, why do you think the tradition's been fading out recently? I think that it's fading out in a large part because of the fast paced nature of our current society. Whereas Espiritismo is very much a process of growth and development that doesn't always move very quickly. That's one. The second thing is that in our in our current uh, society, hierarchies are really important as well as titles. That's something that we don't really have in Espiritismo. Um, we don't have such so much of a set set of titles as well as a set of hierarchies. And a lot of other spiritual traditions have become very popular because, and in part because there is like an easier path or a quicker path for those traditions to grow. When you talk about the, the process, like the slow process, the spiritismo, like, can you give me like a broad strokes? Like what is the process? What are the steps? Why might this be slower than people are perhaps expecting? Okay, so the process is that of first you find yourself a mentor and you begin the process of an, uh, an apprenticeship. Throughout the course of that process, the mentor is going to have you complete certain tasks and then return with the result. And as that result shows itself, then the next process unfolds and what the next steps are. And so the process of mentorship is a process where we're giving you something you're going, you're doing that process, and that process itself may take a few days, a few weeks, a few months to complete before you come back with a result. And then when you come back with that result, then we go into the next layer of work. Also, depending on what arose as a result, we may have to work on various areas that uh, show themselves more clearly as a result of whatever has been done. 
So that's one. Whereas in a lot of modern day traditions, a lot of attention has been placed on the process of initiation and the process of initiation, making someone a priest or a priestess. And that's a title, right? Whereas for us, there is no, no title and you cannot basically receive a ceremony and then receive a title. In terms of, of trying to sort of get going with this, like the mentor sounds basically fundamental. Like if there is, like, is there a path for the solo practitioner in your conception of Espiritismo? Not really, because it is a very much a community-based practice. Mm-hmm. And it is also a practice, the solo practitioner exists, meaning outside of the mentor, the practitioner is going to be practicing on his or her own. And outside of the mentor, eventually, depending on the person, they will be doing work for other people on their own. However, as far as like uh, just self-study and being able to do everything on your own, that's highly unlikely because you need someone who has the experience. And most of our tradition is not in books. So there's not really anything for you to self-study to try to progress on, on your own. So if somebody was interested in pursuing this and they didn't already know, there wasn't already somebody, you know, like in the neighborhood or something that they could reach out to, like, how does someone go about finding a mentor for this? So generally what, what normally would happen is one would go to various places where spiritual workers are. And here in the U.S., that's very commonly spiritual shops to find a connection with various spiritual workers so that espiritista, so that they can go into those espiritista and basically apply to see if they could be mentored, which means having a consultation with the spirits that will let us know like, yes, this is the proper path for the person. And yes, you are the person that can mentor that individual. Just because uh, a person has the knowledge and a person wants the knowledge doesn't always mean that those two personalities are going to click and be able to work with each other. And if one person is is trying to give a teaching, but they're trying to teach someone in a way that that person can't receive it, then it's considered ineffective. And in terms of this knowledge, what what exactly does this tradition tend to offer the sort of the practitioner? so a lot of, you know, spiritual traditions, it's, it's money, it's power, it's, you know, the secret hidden knowledge of the universe or something like that. Like, what is someone pursuing this hoping, what can they reasonably hope to gain from this practice? They can reasonably hope to gain, if following the practice, to know themselves. They can reasonably hope to gain healing, as well as enlightenment or freedom of suffering. What kinds of suffering does this sort of would one sort of hope to liberate themselves from? Because I mean, that is sort of a broad term. Are we talking about like the material suffering of poverty? Or are we talking about the spiritual suffering of a kind of disconnection from the universe? Are we talking about, you know, just that kind of suffering that perpetuates itself from not really facing the parts of ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge are there? Like what's... Actually, all of it. Really? All of it. Yeah, all of it. Whether it's spiritual or it's material... All of it stems from the same source. And so if you cut it, things at the root, the tree dies. So what is the source of this suffering? If it's all sort of the same one, what lies at the heart of these sorrows? What lies at the heart of the sorrows is that people are not connected to their own divinity. 
Just and if you're not connected to your own divinity, excuse me, no, if please. you're not connected to your own divinity, you're not connected to your own power. So all you can expect is problems and suffering, right? If you don't have power to create change, then basically you're at the mercy of the whims and wills of the many other forces around you. Actually, this this ties into something that I kind of really wanted to make sure we talked about, which is the, the, the concept of divinity in this tradition. Because, you know, looking through your book, the, the sort of spiritual environment that is sort of conceived of, it's a very sort of complicated place in some ways. Like there are, you know, the spirits, like the Orishas come in, but there's also a supreme central being. And then there's also, you know, the different spirits of say, you know, pirates and butlers and sort of very specific sort of a diverse array of very specific categories of spirits and like angels are there, saints are there. So could you give me, and like the folks will see at home, like a sense of like the cosmology that's at work here. Like what does the universe sort of look like in terms of the realm of spirit and divinity? So in the realm of divinity and spirit, you have one source, which is God or goes under many other names, but that's the source of everything. The all is the source of everything. And then just as you have in the physical world, right? Here in the physical world, we have people of many different races, many different cultures, and many different positions of power. You have the president, you have the governor, you have the mayor, you have the police, you have all these various levels or layers of power, and yet they all exist on the same plane. So in the spiritual world, all of it exists on the same level or in the same plane, but there's varying spirits which have varying abilities or powers or abilities to do things that exist on that plane. However, all those spirits all come from one source, which is the all. Okay, so it sounds like then, and correct me of course, if I'm wrong then, but like you could use this tradition to work with as like a, as like a means and as a, footing to work with basically if there's something that is spiritual that seems to have a, a reality to you you could sort of work it into this provided that you maintain this hierarchy that there is the one central thing at the very top but as long as that stays where that is everything else can kind of like you could a tree spirit for example or yeah you know you come across a deity in new zealand right and you're like I, there's a connection i like them as long as they're cool with being not number one, they can they can fit in there too. Does that make does that feel correct? Yeah, our tradition provides a framework to work with all spirits. So, and a spirit is basically a consciousness that has energy, right? So, our tradition provides such a framework. So, to give you an example, one of the spirits that let's say. I didn't necessarily grow up with or isn't common in this tradition, but I work with and I deal with is Hecate. Really? Right? Yeah. So Hecate came to me and I had many interactions with her over time to the point where I was like, all right, I get it. I get the message. We're going to start working together. So Hecate and Hecate is... I know the mythologies of all the various Greek, Roman, Egyptian, all the various gods, but Hecate is one spirit that I will say has maintained the energy behind the consciousness that she's been able to survive. Whereas some of the other entities, 
such as let's say Zeus, um, doesn't seem to have the same amount of energy behind that consciousness, and it seems more faded away. Oh wow, that's see, this is a concept that I don't think I've ever heard anyone bring up before. Maybe that's just because I'm I'm isolating because it's a pandemic or something. But like, like that idea of just like you know, like you can take a pantheon and and you don't. It's not like in for a penny, in for a pound. It's like okay, this is part of the Greek pantheon, and that's still totally working. But like this one is just moribund or dead or something like that. Well, if you can if you can fit sort of almost any pre-existing kind of spiritual system under the umbrella of the spirit system, like what makes working through it through this particular tradition different than if you were just going after each of these things individually on their own terms? Like what changes when you do it in this way? Well, what changes is you have a clear cut path and you have a clear cut way of how to do it, how to do it in a manner that is safe, but even more so and more important than safe is not time wasting, right? You can go ahead and reinvent a wheel or you can go ahead and buy a wheel, right? So reinventing a wheel, re-coming up with a, such a thing is gonna take a lot of work, a lot of time. In fact, you might spend a lot of your lifetime trying to get things just right when you could just go into Espiritismo and be given what you need in order for you to bypass, in a way, all of that because the work has already been done, right? Rather than just trying to figure it out on your own. Hmm. And the mind is a very tricky thing. So a lot of times the mind can have you thinking you have something figured out when in reality you don't, which ends up causing uh, surprises which people might call bad luck or this or that. But in reality, it's just a lack of knowing the system of the way that things work. I'm, I'm curious because if this system has everything kind of laid out for you and it doesn't require initiation, what sort of is, are there barriers to this? Are there, are there sort of, because you make it sound so easy. So like, it, it seems like it should be, you know, all over the place. Like everybody should be doing this, but so if it's so simple and it's so applicable to everything. So like, what are the hard stops? What are the obstacles that might be keeping people from doing this? Cause I mean, I guess finding a mentor is one. Yeah, that's the biggest. But if like, if it's all so simple, right? Surely someone could kind of, you know, get some, get some headway and then figure it out on their own. Like maybe even find a spiritual mentor once they kind of get enough juice going or something like that. Like, you know, talk to a spirit guide or something like that. Like it, would that work or does it, is the mentor kind of the hard and fast thing that kind of like is the barrier to entry here? It's not a barrier to entry. However, it is the hardest part of things. So basically our tradition stands on four pillars. Right. And those four pillars are a teacher or a mentor, the teachings themselves, rituals, and practice, experience. So there have been cases, and there often are cases, where people just kind of start walking on the spiritual path and they start as best as they can and they get themselves enough juice to the point like what you said where then they eventually find themselves a mentor and then are able to start going ahead and progressing etc but like part of it is as i covered in the book there was a huge campaign 
uh, to intended to destroy and suppress this part of the culture. And that campaign lasted for more than 40 years. And so that campaign was very effective, especially when we're talking about uh, disenfranchised individuals and opportunities. And by being a part of this, you lost out on certain opportunities. Just for example, currently, if you live, for example, in the Dominican Republic, which is a separate country, but this also would happen back in Puerto Rico. If you currently live in the Dominican Republic and you were poor and you needed help or healthcare, et cetera, but you practice the spiritual tradition, you could not get any assistance from any agency, including the missionaries. Missionaries and Christian missionaries in the islands required conversion in order for assistance. Wow. So like even like secular agencies would be sort of checking on this sort of thing? Yeah, there were secular in the island of Puerto Rico, secular agencies would restrict assistance to individuals who were well-known practitioners. Okay, so like it wasn't like, you know, they send the PIs out to like spy through the window to see if you're doing something. It's just like if the like if you got your shingle hanging on the on the door of like I do this sort of thing and they've seen it, they're like, okay, well this one, not this guy. Yeah, exactly. In the later forms, in the later times, but there was a time in which there were actual secular agencies going around to spy in meetings or reunions, rituals, to see who was participating in these things in order to block them from being able to receive any assistance. And that included, at one time, education. Really? So that meant that if you were involved in these things and you had children, you might be okay, but your children are not going to be educated. Jeez. Okay, so it makes sense that like, it isn't just that this, this has started to fade away, it's also that there was a, an active attempt to push it down. To get rid of it. So it sounds like this, this period of, of, of suppression has sort of passed. Like what changed? What changed was science. What changed was science actually. In the late 80s, early 90s, what changed was scientists started finding out that the healing traditions and the practices that we had were actually effective. And in one case, it's one of the things that we do to deal with people with colon cancer. And that was studied and found out that the plant medicines that we use and the practices that we use was effective in treating people with colon cancer. When science grabbed a hold of the fact that these practices were effective, as well as when I say science, I also mean the medical community. Yeah. by like psychiatrists, et cetera, et cetera, that these practices were effective. Then all of a sudden the campaign sort of ended. Well, two, uh, two things happened. The campaign ended and then B, it started being promoted as uh, Puerto Rican folk knowledge. But by that point, it was way too late in order for it to happen. Many people were already gone. It was it was kind of like way too late in the game to revive it, to bring it back to life. And so that that was one thing. And the other thing that happened was the American government stopped financially supporting the campaign to of eradication. So they stopped the financial support of it, as well as the Protestant Churches of America, which is an organization which was 
paying money to get this eradicated also stopped their financial backing of the eradication campaign. So without the finances, that stopped the campaign of eradication. But like I said, again, it was too late. And then when science and the medical community started to find that some of our practices were actually effective, they wanted to try to revive it. But by that time, it was just way too late. You had already dealt with people for almost 50 years, which is a number of generations. So like we're talking about a period of suppression that started around, so like the 1930s-ish. Yeah, the 1930s or early 1940s around that time. And it ended right into the late 80s, early 90s. So like this isn't even like, because I feel like when we talk about the idea of like religious persecution for something like this, that sounds like, you know, Spanish Inquisition type stuff. That sounds like, you know, 1500s, 1600s. But this is a 20, 20th century phenomenon, this. Yes. Gracious. Okay. Well, I don't want to dwell on this too much because there is so much about the tradition to talk about besides, you know, the, the, the terrible times yes. of the past. Um, actually, people want to like learn more about this era of persecution. Um, they should look to the book, surely, because there's a summary in the book, but also uh, are there other places that they want to get to like a deep dive into this period? Definitely. There's a number of other books. I can't think of all the names, but there's one that I can think of off the top of my head called The War Against Puerto Rico, okay. right? Or War Against Puerto Ricans. It's one or the other of those names. War Against All Puerto Ricans, Revolution and Terror in America's Colony by Nelson Adenis. And it'll talk about, it talks about the campaign, not just in this sense, more so in all the senses of how the American government purposefully poured money and had many um, ideologies about the worth of like Puerto Rican people and Puerto Rican culture. Yeah, that is, I mean, the thing is like, in the book, you make it fairly clear that, like, you know, Espiritismo, it's very much tied in with a, with a sense of Puerto Rican identity. Like, how do you how do you feel these two things connect for you personally? The idea of, like, Puerto Rican identity and, like, this spiritual tradition in particular. I feel like they connect really deeply. A lot of even what now people are unaware is they now think of it as, like, secular practices come from Espiritismo. For example, in Puerto Rican culture, right? There is something that says that you should keep three statues of elephants behind your front door where their trunks are facing into your house. This is to bring good luck. Mm -hmm. This is actually a practice that comes from Espiritismo, right? Now people think it's just a good luck practice. And I have one of my uh, grandmothers who is a Christian convert and She's like very staunch. She's very, very like, she's Christian all the way, right? But she grew up around Espiritismo and she continues to keep her elephants be behind her door for good luck. But at the same time, she says hypnosis is demonic, rock and roll <laughs> is demonic, worldly music is demonic, um, yoga is de demonic, meditation is demonic, everything is demonic. But she continues to keep three elephants behind her door for good luck. 
she continues to keep the coqui frog, which is a little tree frog, which is a symbol and emblem of Puerto Rico, but also an emblem of good luck. She continues to keep that in special places around her house in order to keep her good luck. And so these are these are various things that now like the spiritual part has been kind of washed away out of it to a certain degree. A lot of people don't know where it really comes from and they just think, oh, it's just something Puerto Rican people do. But in reality, it holds its roots in its spiritual traditions. So there's a lot of places in Puerto Rican culture where this can be seen. Something else you point to as an element of this tradition in the book is reincarnation. And like, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the function of reincarnation in Espiritus. Like what, like what reincarnates and what does it potentially reincarnate as? Like could a human soul become just any old thing at some point? Or is there like other limitations where, where, where do things go when they go? So the process of reincarnation for us is the process of evolution of consciousness. Hmm. So the likelihood that a human soul would reincarnate, let's say, into a dog is unlikely because the progression of consciousness is, for lack of a better word, upwards moving. So as you reincarnate with each incarnation, you become a more and more conscious individual, a more and more conscious of your soul and of your spirit. So the only limitation is that consciousness always advances and it never degresses. Okay. Does that, so that sort of sounds like, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an end goal here but that if you don't really do any work to get there, you're still sort of going to kind of move in that direction via this kind of- You're gonna get there. You're gonna get there. Okay, so like you don't necessarily need to, okay. Um, And the other big concept I wanted to make sure we got to before we we moved on to some other like sort of like techniques and rituals and things like that uh, is the universal fluid. So what is the universal fluid? What's it made out of? What does it do? So the universal fluid is the energetic, that connects everything and yet at the same time is contained and creates everything. The universal fluid, you want to think of it as like the divine material through which everything has been created. And the universal fluid is the combination of the spirit, which we, which is consciousness and energy, as well as the magnetic pool that exists between them. Okay, so in this, in this, just to make sure I'm, I'm clear. So, like in this conception of the universe, there is, there is spirit, there is energy, and then is matter, sort of like a form of one or both of those, or is that sort of like a third thing? A matter is simply spirit and energy in a form. Okay, so like a human, like so, like something we would think of as sort of inert, like a rock or something like that, is both spirit and energy together in a particular combination. Exactly. Some items, let's say like a rock, may have less consciousness and more energy, which makes it more physical in its nature. The energy is more dense, right? And other things, maybe like the air or something, would be, again, consciousness and energy, it's just in different variations of combination. How strong is this one and how strong is that one? It's kind of like, how much water am I gonna put in the recipe and how much flour am I gonna put in the recipe? So does this sort of understanding allow you to work with different things 
in a more productive way. If you sort of like conceive of say something as being like much more um, energy than consciousness, you can sort of approach it differently. Or if something say is more consciousness than energy, you might sort of talk to it more. Like how does this sort of affect your, your dealings with the world around you? With the world, yeah. So basically this does give you the idea of understanding of how to work with and communicate with people, persons, objects, places, things, depending on how much of one element or the other is present, right? You wouldn't expect a child of two years old, so you wouldn't talk to them about calculus. They wouldn't understand it. Their consciousness hasn't reached there. Their awareness of math is not there, right? So it gives you kind of like the guideline would be the best way of how to approach and work with different things and how to communicate yourself effectively. And actually speaking of like this kind of communication, it seems like one of the fundamental techniques of this tradition is mediumship, is this kind of ability to communicate with the spirit world. And so in terms of that, like, how does one develop that skill set? How does one sort of bring forward that ability and control it? So one of the really essential techniques that we all use in Espiritismo is the practice of scrying, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the practice of scrying in order to tune into one's spiritual abilities and start to open them up. And the practice of upkeeping an altar, which we call a spiritual table or a mesa espiritual, in order for us to give ourselves that space, in order for us to have the space and therefore the time to start to concentrate and start to effectively pour our energies into opening up our spiritual abilities. We also have prayer, meditation, um, active meditations, active practices, rituals. All these are with the intention of helping to open up those faculties more and more. Okay, so like in terms of scrying, because I think that's a word that gets used a lot to mean maybe different things, but like it's sort of like a term that gets thrown out. So like when you say scry in this context, are we talking about like, take me through like a, like, let's say I'm, 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 I, I, I've just spoken to my mentor. He said, do some scrying. He didn't say what to do. And so I'm going to sit down and do some scrying. What am I actually about to do? Like, what is like, give me a step-by-step -step here. So what you're going to do is you're going to light some candles. You're going to say some prayers. You're going to pray. And then you're going to go inwards as so as to begin to quiet yourself after you kind of attain some relaxation and some quiet in your physical being and your mind, you're going to point your focus into a central bowl of water, right? That's going to keep the focus of your eyes. That's for basically um, concentration purposes. As you are single pointedly concentrating on that bowl of water, you're allowing yourself to open up in order to allow whatever other information is going to enter into your consciousness. Okay, so there's like a kind of, this is good to sound, like an active passivity almost, like you're kind of training the active part of yourself on something so that another part of yourself can be more receptive in kind of like a passive way. Exactly. Okay, and like these prayers that you would say beforehand, are we, because in the book you, you talk about sort of different prayer sources, but are like, what are some like, 
go-to prayers for scry are we are we working out of like a primarily sort of like catholic tradition with these prayers are we working out of like are there special espiritismo prayers that are like just for this tradition are we talking about um something more from the spiritualist tradition like what do you like what are your go-to's as a okay so uh, many of our practitioners in our practice was uh had the background or grew up in around catholicism so for me I open up with Catholic prayers of Our Father, Hail Mary, and the Glory Be. And then we use a book of collection of spiritist prayers, right? So we have books of prayers, spiritist prayers, other spiritual prayers that have been created over time. And then we would go into those prayers. And then after that, some prayer directly from the heart. Now, the beautiful thing about Espiritismo is that it doesn't require you to be Catholic or Christian or this or this or that. So those beginning prayers, I use the Catholic prayers because that's how I was taught. However, those beginning prayers could be the beginning prayers for like someone who practiced Islam or someone who practiced Judaism. The important part of the prayers is to get connected with the source. And in terms of like, cultivating this ability through the scrying, right? Is it just a question of like putting in the time, like doing like, you know, a scrying session once a day for like six months and you'll just sort of, as you do that with enough steadfastness and discipline, you will just get better at it? Or is there like a kind of leveling of like the scrying gets more complicated as you go along? Like there's introductory scrying and then there's like intermediate scrying that involves new prayers, more complicated prayers, saying things backwards. I don't know. Like, is it just a question <laughs> yeah. of like grinding down to do it? Or is it like, are there? No, there's, there's other practices that are that a mentor will give you in order to empower the scrying. Okay, so it's kind so of while funny. you're doing this scrying, we're not trying to have you sit around scrying for six months, mm. right? Before you get any leeway, any traction. So while you're doing the scrying, that's why the mentor is important because the mentor is gauging you and being like, okay, this is another practice that you need to engage in that is not scrying. Here are other practices, and those other practices, in in effect, support and unravel, remove whatever blockages you may be having with the scrying. So scrying is just one element of it. And then basically the other practices help to basically break down everything else that block the spiritual abilities from coming through. Okay. So like what kind of what kind of things are you what are you breaking down? Like what are these blocks? Everyone has blockages based on their experiences of life. Your main block is your mind. So how do we how do we conquer the mind? What is the mind killer? You have to go beyond the mind. That sounds very cool. What is that? How do you do? How do you go beyond it? Where do you go? It's actually through the series of a lot of them are actually physical practices. So through a series of all different types of practices, it will take you to beyond your mind. Right. So your mind ha is a very tricky being. It has the ability to, you know, find a back door, find a loophole, find a leeway, make assumptions, make judgments. And this is how the majority of people move through life. Right. You have to go beyond the mind, which is into the spirit. And when I say into the spirit, into direct essence. Right. Then from that direct essence, things can start to flow downwards. This culture in uh, 
today's day and age is very mind focused. The mind is the all. The mind is the end all be all, right? Universal mind, 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 mind. But in reality, the mind cannot resolve the mind, which is why so many people are suffering from depression, anxiety, and all kinds of other mental health issues. And they're trying to use their mind to fix it. The mind cannot resolve the mind. So therefore, this is why a lot of practices that we have secularly do not work to help resolve many of these issues, or they work as temporary reliefs because they rely upon a flawed system to resolve another flaw, which is built within the system itself. So you can't, you can't fight mind fire with mind fire. Who are you fighting? It's you fighting you. Who's going to win? You're going to win. And who's going to win is probably your mind, because that's what you have a lot more energy has been devoted to your whole entire life. So if you fight your mind, it's only you fighting yourself. It doesn't matter who wins. Either way, the other side will come back to win. Right. Because you also lose if you're fighting yourself, no matter what. So then what are these like physical practices to get beyond the mind and defeat the mind? Are we talking about like, you know, the trance state that comes from like heavy physical labor? Are we talking about sort of repetitive action that kind of gets you out of your head or something? Like what's, are we talking about like physical in the sense of just like there's a ritual and it's like, it's happening, you know, in front of you. So you have to like actually do stuff with your body to make it happen. There's that aspect of things. There are repetitive practices. There are practices that involve work. There are practices that involve life, basically, and moving throughout life in a certain way, starting to move differently in your life. So basically, the practices are all varied because what Espiritismo is, it's a tradition of holistic, it's a holistic tradition. And so we have to address all of your five bodies in order to get you beyond the mind. So the five bodies, Tell me, tell me more about that. What are, what are the five bodies that a person has? So the five bodies are the physical body, the energy body, the emotional body, the mental body, and the spiritual body. So we have to basically resolve all of those bodies and bring you back into oneness. We say that right now as you are, as you are right now, you're split into five personalities at minimum. Right. And this is why one moment you're like, hey, I'm going to go on this diet and I'm going to do good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're gung ho about it. And then maybe five hours later, you're like, to hell with the exercise. I never want to exercise. I'm just going to eat this cake. That's because you're not one yet. You're actually five or six personalities. We say that the mind is the, the mind as well as all these bodies. You're in neurosis. Would it be fair to say then that it's kind of hard to, because I was going to ask you when you started talking about the physical stuff, like, like give us a specific example that someone could take just because they're listening to this and maybe they want to give it a go. But it sounds like there's a lot more diagnostic work. That's why the mentor is necessary because as you're growing and you're showing whatever result, let's say comes as a result of a practice, the mentor is able to be like, okay, because this is where you're at, this is what's needed next right? And this is what's coming up for you. We all are individuals, and yet we all are the same. So that whole process is diagnosed and also guided by the mentor. So it sounds like 
if someone is starting down this path, they're really putting a lot of faith in this mentor, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's someone who's sort of, they're really saying, take the wheel here. Is there like, what is, are there ways that, especially because this is so community-based, right? Like there's so much in the sense of like, it isn't just you and the mentor. It's you and the mentor within a larger social sort of milieu. Yeah, like what, like, are there, I guess there must be a better way of saying this, but like standards and practices or something to kind of avoid the potential for, I would say, abuse of power that might come from that kind of relationship. Is it just sort of like, if you feel in your gut that things are kind of going in a bad direction, you just got to get out and find a new mentor? Or is there like more of like, is it just a question of like really ping-ponging around the community being like, you know, like, should I go with this mentor? What have you heard? What's the scuttlebutt? What's the whisper network or whatever? Like, how how is this problem, this potential problem avoided? So one is, of course, go with your gut. Any good mentor is not gonna is gonna tell you not to go against your gut. However, your gut has been programmed, and oftentimes your gut is wrong. This is what we call false intuition, and so that part of the problem is that. So the second thing to look at is for the mentor's character. Who is the mentor? Try to get to know this person, not just in the spiritual realm, but also outside of the spiritual realm. Do they walk the walk and talk the talk, right? Or are they just a preacher? Do they just say one thing and then do another, right? And that comes in the way of their being. How are they as a being? Not what they say and not what they do but a be- how are they as a being? Are they a being that's filled with compassion, love and understanding? Or are they someone who's actually still in worse suffering than you are, right? These are all things that you kind of have to constantly be aware of or be open to. Usually a proper mentor is either gonna inspire great love in you or great fear. Either one is good. If you find someone that inspires great fear in you, I say to my um, mentees, run to that person. That person has something for you. If you find someone that inspires great fear in you, because a true mentor is going to make you fearful, is going to make you uncomfortable, Hmm. right? Because we're built here to destroy what you know, to destroy everything that's false and everything that holds you down. You're comfortable and you know your problems and your miseries, you're actually quite attached to them. Because what would you, how would you be a center of attention? Who would care about you and make you a center of attention if you had no misery, if you had no problems? Happy people do not get attention. Happy people are left alone. That's interesting because I'm so used to the idea of like popular people often are the people who seem kind of happy. Though maybe I'm I'm being a bit because I am also thinking like who is popular in my mind it's the people who make self-deprecating jokes about about their sorrow which is always interesting but like with your own mentor right when you had a mentor I'm presuming you did because you are protecting your essential right like what was that relationship like did you feel fear did you feel love because I mean there's also it's funny because this idea of like feeling intense fear and discomfort also seems like a red flag right? It sounds like the sort of like sign to get out of there. So like, I mean, did you have a moment of having to discern like, is this good discomfort or bad discomfort? Like, yeah, so I had two mentors, right, that worked together. Um, And one of them was definitely 
they were almost like polar opposites, right? One of them was definitely someone who inspired deep love and compassion, almost like a Mother Teresa-like figure. It was just like so beautiful. The other one, my other mentor, who I was actually in the end ended up closer to, inspired, inspired great fear. In fact, one of the first thing that she said to me is, I love you, but I hate you, right? And, and it was like, that was, and when I was, going through my mentorship, I was young. So it was scarier for me actually to hear this adult tell me this, but I came to understand what she actually meant. What she actually meant was as you are now, you are not an individual, you are a many. I can't, I can't be with the many, you're neurotic, okay? Which is the part that I hate, but I love you because I know what's behind the neurosis is truth. Any true shaman or uh, sage throughout the ages, any spiritual master, whether that was Jesus, Buddha, or Tilopa, right? All of them made the person who was coming to be mentored go through some tests and some difficulties. It was never easy to get a mentor. Mentors don't make it easy right? Because what the mentor has, has incredible value. And that there's no money that can replace, can actually pay for that. So all of them went through incredible difficulties in order to find their mentors. And if we look at any of the scriptures of Jesus, and when I mean scriptures, I mean actual quotations of Jesus, not the religions around them, Jesus, Buddha, um, Salopa, or many of the other enlightened beings throughout life, what you're going to find in them is what seems to be, to the common mind, contradictions. Contradictions all about. It's going to see in one place, Jesus says, like, I've come here, you know, to destroy the world, to bring a sword amongst men, to create the vision. And then in another place, he says, like, love your brother as yourself, love everyone as God, as you love God. And so to the common mind who doesn't understand mystical language, it seems like it's a contradiction. But in actuality, it's not. And there's a really great story about Talopa, right, which was a, ma a spiritual master, where at one time when Naropa came upon, Naropa being the mentee, came looking for him, he found Salopa eating from a bowl of food, a, a human skull, alongside with a dog eating from that skull with him. And Naropa was absolutely disgusted and horrified. One, that he was eating out of a skull. Two, that basically he was eating alongside of a dog. And Salopa said to him, basically, why is it so wrong that I'm eating out of a human skull? It's cleaner than your skull. Your skull is filled with anger, rage, hatred, violence, and pride. At least this skull has no brain in it. And so it's nice, clean, and clear. And I washed it too. And secondly, why do you think yourself better than a dog? A dog is what it is. He doesn't fake it. If he's angry, everyone knows the dog is angry. If you're angry, you falsify your anger. If it doesn't convenience you, if you're afraid of the repercussions of that anger. So you're just as rabid and wild as any other dog, and you're probably worse, right? Mm -hmm. Such is a master, a, ma a mentor, a spiritual master is going to be a bit of a puzzle. They're going to be somewhat confusing.
They think outside of what is the norm and outside of the box, right? Which is why many of those masters were never really taken as masters for who they were. Instead, we crowned, in many places, we crowned false people because false makes false comfortable. So people, they crown, you know, saints such as Mother Teresa or, you know, this saint or that saint around the world as being some grand holy being, when in reality, many of them were filled with judgment and aggression and very much against nature and against the world. Interesting. So, because like the saints play like a, like a, a role in this, in this tradition, but it sounds like not all saints are created equal. Well, not only that. Just as I told you, if you're listening to me with your regular mind, it sounds like I'm a contradiction, but I'm not, a, I'm not contradicting anything. In reality, what I'm saying is what most people consider saints or holy men or anything but, okay? And, and yet they are also saintly because they've actively chosen to devote their life to something bigger than themselves. Mm. And everything exists a little bit of both. Do you feel that in terms of like, you know, someone who has come through the mentorship process and really kind of fully bloomed as an espiritismo practitioner, is there a place that of like sort of the holy person who kind of hides out in the woods and you come to them and have like a revelatory experience that's kind of disconcerting, like you find the meeting out of a human skull and you're like, ah, ah, or is it like much more of a kind of like, this is the person who also works at the post office, or they're also at the grocery store, but you know that if something goes wrong, that's the person you talk to about this, but you also see them when you go to the movies or, you know, you like, are they part of the, like, as much as this is like a community work kind of thing, are yeah, they part that, of the community or are they something sort of separate? Both. So they are still a part of the world because what marks them as a master is their ability to still move throughout the world and be a part of the world. In fact, what it is, is they're in the world, but they're not of it. The world is not in them. That's the difference. As you are, the world is in you. You're a lot of what you think, a lot of your notions of right and wrong have been given to you by the world. A lot of what you think is morality has been given to you by the world. A lot of your worries are based on the world. The world is inside of you. For a spiritual master, they move in the world, but they're not, the world is not in them. And so, yeah, they'll still be walking around in the movies, et cetera. A lot of people who, let's say, are monks and nuns, and they basically run off, for us, they're cowards, right? Because if you are at peace yourself, nothing can disturb you. But if you take a monk or a nun and walk them down the street, they're disturbed by people wearing scanty clothes. They're disturbed by seeing prostitutes. So instead they run and they hide. And to us, that's coward, cowardly, which just says to us that they haven't attained anything. So it sounds like, you know, Espiritismo, there's no big initiation. There's no sense of like the binding pact that sort of works in a lot of systems, but there is still this kind of commitment to something that sounds something somewhat more fundamental, right? Like you're taking on a new morality, you're taking on a new ethical stance. Is this, is this sort of, cause like you were saying the tradition's not in books, right? So if somebody wants to get a taste of the kind of ethical commitment and worldview that they would sort of be making, 
is there like a codified something out there that they can kind of look at and be like, yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can live this kind of life. Or is it really, you just got to talk to the mentor and the mentor really kind of lays it out for you of like, this is, this is the game you've decided to play now. Yeah. So that's basically how it is, which is why I wrote the book. Okay. The reason I wrote the book is because there is no way for a person who's totally new to have any idea of like, what is right, what is wrong, what is the way, what it's like, what it's not like. And the West, which is now everywhere, the West puts the book on uh, at, as the top tier. Yeah. Right? If there's a book behind something, then it must be truth. When in reality, a book is just a compilation of words, right? But without a book, which is why all of the current religions like uh, Islam, Christianity, all of them are book-based religions, right? Because they've indoctrinated people that basically a book is what validates something. So the book the, then is, is a concession to this particular like hegemonic notion of knowledge, right? Like that, that like you're not undermining the verbal tradition. It's just, you're trying to, you know, meet society where it is. Of course, because uh, a spiritual master is not a negator. We're, like I said, we're, we live in the world. We're not of the world, but we live in it. And so if we live in it, then we need to understand people where they're at and we need to be able to come meet them where they are at. You wouldn't expect a child to meet you in an adult conversation mentally, right? But you will expect an adult to meet a child where that child is at mentally. And so a spiritual master sees where the people are and they go there because we need to go to where you are in order to lift you back up. And actually, I think that kind of comes to, because I, I, did, I didn't want to like let you go before we talked about you know, the ritual aspect of this. And that kind of brings brings it kind of to there a little bit. Cause like, could, we, could you talk a little bit about like um, reunions in this tradition? Cause it does seem like that is very much people coming to, you know, the community spiritual master for something. Like what is the process like? What typically, like why are people going to reunions? What happens when they get there? So people typically come to reunions in order to resolve either life issues or spiritual based issues. And they also come to receive messages from the other realm, from the spiritual world. And so they come to receive that, as well as people who are on the path are coming to reunions in order to further develop themselves, in order to further grow in their own abilities to, to become channelers and not channelers and what people think, but basically a vehicle through which messages can come through. And in our tradition, it's not either or. So many spiritual traditions are like, you know, in order for you to be successfully spiritual, you need to renounce the world. We're not either or. We say that basically success should be rising on both sides. And a true spiritual master doesn't really care what help you're coming for. If you're coming for help in the material world, we're here for you for that right? Because sometimes it's the material that leads to the spiritual. And sometimes it's the spiritual that leads to the material. 
So in terms of like the kind of, cause like the spiritual help seems almost kind of obvious, right? Like a spirit talks to you and you're like, okay, we're having a conversation that's you know helpful. Material help, like what are we sort of like, it's the idea that sort of like a spirit has told me that you should make this investment, not this investment, or is it, is it sort of more sort of like in the tradition of something like, you know, I've produced a spiritual wealth amulet, keep the amulet in the shop, it attracts wealth. Like where, where does that kind of material help kind of come in? What are the techniques? What are the, the moves? So both. So one, and yes, in the course of advisement, right? Like, do take this stock, not that stock, that exists. But also in the realm of what people have always called magic, or what's now commonly be called manifestation. In the world of ritual, in order to create a create a desired change, mm. right? And the way that that spiritual master may do that ritual or that magic manifestation, whatever have you, will be different. But that's really about condensing an energy and then sending it out to re achieve a certain result. Do sort of physical objects have much of a role in, in this tradition? Like amulets, I'm trying to think of like, you know, sigil type things. Yes. Something you could kind of take home with you in your pocket. Yes, because that gives the energies a place to root themselves and sit themselves in the material world. So amulets, sigils, um, prepared bottles, right? All that type of stuff does exist in this work. But there are also practitioners that work on an astral realm, like an astral type of magic. Okay, so there's a lot of just sort of you, you you go to the, protect, the practitioner, they do something. You can't really see what's going on, but it's it's happening elsewhere. So in reunions, what role does water play? It's very important. Water connects you with everything. You're mainly made of water, and the water that you drink has been drunk for thousands of years. It connects you with your ancestors. The same water that you're drinking, your ancestors drink. As we all know, water is re constantly recycled, right? Drinking water is constantly recycled. That's why we have a limited amount on the earth and have water shortages, etc. So that's one. Secondly, water is kind of like the physical manifested form of what's the closest similarity to the universal fluid, right? Water can take any shape. Water can transform into any vessel. If you put it into a jar, it's gonna take the shape of the jar. If you put it here, it takes the shape of that, right? And water moves itself to the lowest point. So very much like energy. Energy always goes to wherever the lowest point is. So water has a lot of significance in the spiritual work, in reunions, on altar tables. Water is one of those essential ingredients. And speaking of altar tables, like earlier when you were describing them, it sounded almost like the purpose of the altar table is less the table itself and more just to have a central point that you associate with this kind of meditative concentrated work. But like with the altar table, like what's a, a basic setup? Like what is, what like how complicated does this need to be? What's going to be on there? Who are you talking to at this table? Okay, so it can go, it can grow really complicated. 
It can go to the complication of having a whole room and having many statues and objects all over to represent different spirits or entities that you're working with, etc. Or it could go to our most simple, most basic altar, which basically is comprised of a table with a piece of white cloth, a glass of water, and a candle, right? Okay. And when you're working at the altar table, you're using that altar table as a portal, as a portal to connect with divinity, to connect with the divine, but you can also use the altar to connect with various other entities or spirits. And like the spirits, like, it seems like ancestor work is certainly part of this. But like the other spirits too, like when, like, let's take, for example, um, you, you, you list in the book uh, butlers as a kind of spirit. Should we understand this to be, you know, just the, the ghosts of those who were butlers in life? Or is there kind of like a butler archetype that different spirits will kind of walk into the face of, you know, behind the mask kind of? Or is the butler, is there kind of some kind of or butler spirit? Like who, like when you're like, say, working with like, because you have a, a bunch of these, right? You have like clerical mm -hmm. figures, you have... Uh, Hindu right. figures, right? Big yeah, figures. sailors, pirates. I think is one that gets that gets thrown. Yeah. Like, but like just using the butler as a you know just to drill exactly. down onto something. Like, mm -hmm. what is when you talk to the butler or the butlers? Who are you actually talking to? So you're speaking with it can be a the spirit of a deceased butler or b it's serving as an archetype in which that spirit, a certain spirit, holds that that level of consciousness. And so that, therefore, that spirit holds that role. And when we talk about the idea of like talking to a butler spirit, is it is the level that that this this term this like label is helping us? Is it mostly in terms of like what we might ask this spirit to do, or does it sort of go the full way of like how we interact? Like it's sort of like well, butler, you know, you politely say things as a demand to a butler because presumably you are the in this scenario, you are the person who employs the butler, right? Like, so like you'd make a butlery type offering of like, um, you know, uh, I actually don't, I've never had a butler, so I don't really know what you give. I Money, I would assume, is what you give a butler. Uh, but like, so like, is it, does it kind of characterize the entire interaction? Like, do you have to like kind of role play as like a butler employer or is it just sort of like, hello butler, uh, buttle please for me? No, it's based on a, having a real relationship, right? And so naturally, like, if there are certain issues that you're dealing with, you're going to go to the spirits that you have relationships with that are best equipped at handling those situations. But at the end of the day, it's really about having a real relationship with that spirit or that entity. So it's not so much, even though they hold that role, that is more so for the sense of the human needs classification, the human mind needs classification, and it needs these things in order to understand the energetic. So the archetypes are just a halfway point for you to meet something else. There's exactly. nothing sort of necessarily butlery, butlerian about the spirit. Exactly. But if you wanted to go to like someone specific, right? Like let's say you, you go to the cemetery and you know that you know, uh, this person in this grave was a butler for 30 years before they died. 
Like, would it make sense in this tradition to scoop up some grave dirt, bring it to the altar and be like, hey, specific person that I just dug up a little bit of, like, can you help me using the skills and knowledge that you acquired in life as this person? Or is that too specific? No, that can be done. Okay, so like working- That can be done and that is done in a different way. For example, right? Um, Let's say you are fighting a war for your job, Mm -hmm. right? Meaning like you're in some crosshairs, some crossfires, right? Some people will go to the cemetery and look for uh, spirits of people who were military men, high-ranking military men, in order to go fight the battle for them at work. So that can be done, as long as the spirit is actually present in the grave. Oh, interesting. Because I'm, I'm so used to people talking about graveyard work in the sense of like, well, there it's the grave. Where else would they be? But like... So what makes a person sort of not present in the grave? Is it just sort of a question of time or is it just a thing you have to kind of like get a read on somehow or like what's? It's, it's not so much of a question of time. Some spirits end up earthbound, more so earthbound, whereas other spirits progress onto their next lives. And remember just when we talk about reincarnation, that incarnation can exist in this plane or the next. Right. So, yeah, when you die, you're being reborn into a spiritual world. That whole world is in a different incarnation than it is this one. Right. So they may or may not be available when you try to dial their phone number. They may or may not be there. You know, they may may or may not be there where their old vessel was, which is the grave. So if they move, if they move upstairs, like there's nothing left. There's no sort of residual bit about Energetic. Yeah. Where, if you, if, a, if and when a person reincarnates to this upper, this upper realm, like what are they reincarnating as? Like what, what is a, a human soul in that, in that area? It's still a soul. It's still a soul working on its next, like for lack of a better term, its next life and its evolution of consciousness. Okay, so there's something, there's nothing fundamentally human about the soul. It's just, this is just another bus stop on the road to something else. Exactly. And like, is there a, is there like a sort of, in this tradition, is there a very specific delineation of like, like above human is this kind of thing and this kind of thing until you get back to the monad? Or is it just sort of like, it's kind of a mystery once you get past there? Yes, yeah, so typically above human is what we consider ancestral. Okay. But then after ancestral, you have spirit guides. After spirit guides, you have what we call mysteries. Some people call it saints. It doesn't really matter. It means the mysteries of God, of life. Then we have what's called pure spirits. And then finally, the, the awe, the monad, right? However, just because a person is incarnated in a human body, doesn't mean that when they die, they're going to end up in the level of the ancestors. They could end up in the, if they did enough progress and their consciousness progressed enough, they could end up going directly into the monad. Is there, is there a situation where a person who's been incarnate as a human being and, you know, they've done nothing in terms of progress? Like we've talked about this ratchet effect. So there's going to be some kind of forward movement regardless. Exactly. But 
if they basically just kind of like let it all, it doesn't matter, you know, whatever. And maybe they were very nasty in some way. Are they just going to be human again? Or is there some sort of like purgatory between humanity and ancestral states? Are they going to- So there is, yeah, there is a sort of purgatory that happens for some spirits that have had trouble in, you know, resolving their challenges. And so the, there is like a purgatory-like state. Is is there connections to be made with a spirit like that in this tradition? Because I know, like, like, when I think of, like, the thing that comes to mind with that sort of conception is, like, the anima sola, right? Like, there's sort of, like, a an idea of, like, well, this this soul is certainly in a, in a bad way. And people, you know, historically will make deals with that particular kind of soul. Of, like, I will help you get out of there if you help me do X. Is there, mm-hmm. like, is that, a, like... Even like if we take the the idea of uh, of an exchange out of it, is there things? Are there things you could do to bump one of those spirits up a little bit? Of and, course. And then you okay. And is it common? Like what kind of techniques? What are we talking about? We have various techniques. One is called, known as elevations. It's there's rituals that are taught basically to evolve or elevate the spirit. As you elevate those around you or those spirits, you also become elevated right and so it's always everything always exists in a give and take whether or not you realize it right so when you have a job you went to an interview you got a job you took the job from someone else right take always happens as well as give there's always a flow of give and take within the universe so Yes, people do work with that. And some people are plagued by those negative spirits. And it's basically their uh, mission in life to elevate those spirits in order for they to be able to live successfully or without that plague. Okay, so the, the take in that scenario would be the work of elevation and the gift. Exactly. To, okay. This actually kind of brings me to, there's one thing that I absolutely, because I know we've been talking for like an hour and I don't want to keep you too long because I, you know, out of respect for your time and I appreciate you taking the time to talk. But before you go, I do want to ask one last thing that has, that I, I am very curious about, which is uh, voluntary spiritual possession. There's, there's, a, there's a portion in the book where you talk about different gradations of mm-hmm. possession that happen. Can you talk a little bit about those gradations? Because it doesn't, I think a lot of people talk about it almost like an on-off switch of like, there's someone in there or there isn't. But it seems like that's, it's more of a dial. in this. Exactly. Exactly. So we have people that have that on off switch, meaning, you know, the spirit is fully there and the person is no longer there. But we also have individuals where they are able to retain some level of consciousness. And while the spirit is also present, able to control some of their movements or their voice, their vocals, or control some of their arms and their limbs, or take control over the brain. Meanwhile, the person is watching things unfold as if in a dream, right? And there's also people that undergo an out-of-body experience, but where they themselves may be hanging out in the corner, watching the scene from the corner, but the, the spirit is in the body really fully moving and doing everything that it's doing. So there's definitely a dial in which some people are either more or less conscious of the events that are occurring. Okay. And like when a possession like this occurs in this tradition, you know, like when perhaps you are in the corner, 
you know, that's you in the corner, that's you in the spotlight, watching your body do a spiritismo. Is it primarily a communicatory thing? Is it just sort of the spirit's definitely in here and they're talking and so you don't need the conduit of the medium. You don't need to worry about like, I'm seeing this or that. It's like actually like someone is just talking to you or can they sort of do things that they would not ordinarily be able to do or in a directed way? Like if, if you've got the spirit inside of you and you're sort of able to kind of watch it and kind of guide it a little bit, like you're still kind of in this like intermediary state, could you like direct the energy of the spirit directly out of your body into something? Yeah, that can happen. That can happen. A lot of times, however, um, the spirit will be able to still do various things that the human or the medium wouldn't be able to do on their own. But part of the reason why those states are induced by the spirits is as teachings to the mediums. So that doesn't even need necessarily, like you might, if you do like the full possession, you're not actually really present. You might need someone else yeah. in the room just to tell you what you said. Exactly. But like you're not Whereas, really, okay, sorry. Yes. If you're not fully gone, if the person's not fully gone or they're like somewhere else watching the what's going on, then at times they may have a situation, it's not uncommon, where like they watch certain pieces and then kind of black out on certain pieces and watch certain pieces and black out on certain pieces. This is all a way for that medium to learn. And maybe it could be learning what the spirit is saying to that individual, but they can also be being shown in a different level like okay this person is having this issue because now that i'm out of body i can see that these are the energies that, and these are the conditions that are around this person and this is why the spirit does this so next time i let's say deal with this same scenario i don't need to have a spirit come and take over my body in order for me to deal with it i know now how to deal with it okay and is there, are there techniques for inducing this kind of state or is it just sort of, you know, you're having a day and then suddenly there's someone else? No. Yeah, there's definitely techniques. Otherwise you just be walking around all the time, just like being taken over and being taken control of. So there's definitely techniques and also in rituals like the reunion and things of that nature, the environment is made so that it's conducive and so that it's drawing on spirits to come and take over people's body. What's an environment that is conducive to possession? Like, what do you, like, what is it well, just a question of like having incense going or is there like more that needs to be done? There's more that needs to be done on an energetic level. And also aside from those ritual parts, what I think one of the most important parts for many mediums is safety, right? So, they have to be in a place where they're going to feel safe enough to allow control to let go of control over their body okay so right? like a familiar place might be like conducive mm. to this instead of just like or no no because i go all over the world and call spirits and do reunions and i'm not in familiar places so what makes you feel safe to do that what makes me feel safe to do that is myself. Like you trust your you trust yourself to kind of handle I that? trust myself. I trust I trust what I do. I've been doing it since 1989, so I have no reason not to trust. I trust my like I trust myself and I trust basically the divine. Mm -hmm. Whatever is going to happen will happen whether I'm there or not. So, but 
I'm not, mm, I'm not exactly what's most common for most people. There's people who don't even feel safe in their own homes, right? And when I say safe, I'm talking about not just physically safe, but also mentally, emotionally safe on all levels, right? Safe energetically, et cetera. So one of the things that the reunion does is like the location is cleared of energies. There's no energies there that are going to cause for harm. There's protections spiritually placed around the space so that negativity cannot enter. And there's times where we do call upon negative spirits, in which case there's a gate, for lack of a better word to say, there's a gate that is basically like, allow these types of negative spirits to enter, but not those types of negative spirits to enter. Because negative spirits may be called upon to enter in order to go undergo the healing process. So you're like exercising demons of their own demoness. Fascinating. Yes. How does so how does that because I, I presume that a demon wouldn't want to be the demon fied, right? Like I assume that they'd be kind of upset about that whole thing. Yeah, it may take it may take multiple sessions in order to, you know, get the demon to decide to no longer, you know, be in that state or that position. It may not be just like a one-time communication, a one-time the demon coming through, etc. So it may not be that way. It may take multiple occasions to slowly, slowly chip away at those issues so that the demon can come to see the light of reason. So you're, so this isn't like the kind of standard, like Catholic Roman rite exorcism of just like, you know, brute force, here's a hammer on the face of the demon. This is like motivational interviewing. And this is like a healing process for the demon. So you say the demon is a demon because the demon is heavily traumatized. So you're like actually like doing therapy for like, this is, huh. So like, do you, like, how do you build like a therapeutic alliance with a demon? Like, how do you kind of get a demon to trust you enough to open up about these sorts of things? Well, you have to have compassion. You have to have love for the being. You have to not fault it for what it does. You can only do as far as your consciousness goes. So if you believe that there's evil, then you're not going to be able to have that, let's say, therapy session with the demon, right? If you can see that evil acts are only a result of where the consciousness is at, your approach is different, your energy is different, and the demon can read your energy. So the demon can read your energy and see if it can trust you. How do you... I'm sorry, because I feel like I'm, I'm dragging you down a digression, but like this is really fascinating. And this is a thing that I, I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot. How do you entice a, a demon for like this initial kind of contact? Because like I'm picturing in my head something kind of kicking and screaming. Like it doesn't want this kind of situation. Like I, it's funny that we're having this conversation today just because on Tuesday, I was in like, I like watched a long presentation about the psychiatric survivors movement. So people who have done a lot of work to try to liberate people who have been forced into psychiatry against their will, you know, like captured and put in, you know, institutionalized in a way that they had no volition in 
you know, very coercive techniques of like, like sedation and things like that. So like, are you, how do you maintain a kind of ethical stance to entice voluntary therapy with these, these sort of beings that are often treated as the incarnation of evil? I love them. It's very simple. I love them. All progress that has ever been made is a result of demons. No good spirit has ever caused progress. That is a hot take and I love it. Um, so you love them for their, the progress that they, how do they, how I do demons them. I love them for the problems that they created. I love them for the evil that they've done because without that evil, no progress would ever happen. When you're absolutely happy, as I said before, you become, you lack any ambition and any motivation. That's why when people are really happy, right? They, they have a saying like, when people are really happy, they get fat, right? It's because you no longer have no ambition. Ambitions come from problems. Technology and breakthroughs come from resolving issues and problems. If the demons are the source of the problems, they're the source of your growth. So if you were able to put all, all the demons in the universe through this process. I wouldn't. You would not? No. So why, so why do it for some? Why if, do it for some? Because the time has arrived. Interesting. So like, and, and is it the demon that determines the time has arrived? Like, are they like, I'm ready to do this? Usually not, but they're, their consciousness decides for them just like as you know a person who in their mind they don't want to go do something but they still go and do it anyway right their consciousness has decided for them but the forefront of the mind may not may have decided against it okay so there's a there's a desire but it's like a deep down the desire is deeper down than the present desire because the present desire is usually just concerned with the present. Interesting. Because I feel like if you were to say something like that to a person, right? If you were to like turn to a human being and say like, you think you don't want this, but you want this. And I'm going to make it happen for you regardless of whether or not you think you want it. Like that would seem very coercive. That would seem like a kind of violence. Does it, is that more or less how it happens with demons and some, because it's demons, you don't feel like that's, that's necessarily like a violent thing to do, or is it, is it, am I mischaracterizing the sort of. No, it is a form of violence. Who said violence was wrong? Okay. So like violence is, is okay in this, in this context or in many contexts, you would say. Yeah. You're living in the house you ha are living in now because of violence. I can't deny that. Okay. I'm sitting where I'm sitting now because of violence. Violence has benefited many people. Okay, that's the human judgment, right? It wants to classify violence as bad and peace as good. What is peace? Peace is waiting for violence. What is, what is peacetime when there's not a war? What happens during peacetime? Everyone's preparing for war. The most violence happens during the peacetime, not during the wartime. Interesting. So should I understand you as sort of saying that violence is sort of better than peace or that violence and peace have a, have a sort of a natural coexistence and one kind of needs the other? You need violence in order to have peace. And one is not better than the other. Both of them are. Both of them exist. They just are. It's not about better or worse. It's more so about wise and unwise, depending upon what are the goals or intentions you hope to reach, right? 
if I, I'm going to give you an example. If I really desire, and I have a way, I have a way for everyone, actually. Your, your, your viewers or your listeners are going to love this. If you want to absolutely live for free, eat for free, get free cable, have a huge community around you that will always be there, all you have to do is go and kill someone. Then you'll end up in jail, where in the United States, you will eat for free, live for free, etc., etc., etc. Do you see? So in that case, that's not an unwise action if that's your true intention. In fact, I know people who are in jail who basically purposefully did things to put themselves there because that's where they wanted to be. They feel more comfortable there. They more feel more at ease there. So in our world, then we say that's not an unwise action. That For that person's intention, it's a wise action. However, if you do not want to be sitting in jail, it's unwise for you. Or let's say if you want to be able to choose what you eat at whatever given time and to be able to move freely throughout the globe, then it's unwise for you to kill a person. It all depends what's more important to you and when. I feel like as someone living in New York City, I should push back against that a little bit just because of the recent stuff at, at Rikers in particular where food has been withheld. So like the eating for free may not always be the case in some jails, but I get the it, point you're making though. I right? have to push but, back on that with you back because food being withheld and someone not being fed at all ever and having to pay for food are three different things. Right. If you go to a jail currently in Haiti, okay, if someone doesn't bring you food, you aren't going to eat. AKA, if one of your family members, if oh, someone from the community doesn't bring you food, the jail is not going to provide it for you. Okay. So but... withholding a meal or withholding two meals is not starvation. Okay. I mean, I feel like these are sort of detailed, but like the larger point that it seems like you're making is that in a spiritismo, the, the ethics are not sort of, is this action moral or immoral? It's more, is this action in keeping with the intention that you have set without there being necessarily judgment on the, the intention one way or the other? By the way, in a spiritismo, ethics is one that is based more on things like practicality. Like, is this going to work for the thing that you want it to work for? In, in many ways, in many ways, naturally, if you have... You have people at all levels of development that haven't achieved yet a state of non-judgment or of unity where they're still going to be living in a world of, is this moral or immoral? However, in Espiritismo, as in all spiritual, like deep mystical traditions, morality follows consciousness. Consciousness does not follow morality. It's because of morality being taught to you that people become false. Because it isn't naturally emerging from... You, exactly. So, for example, you're taught to share as a child. Even when you don't want to share, you're taught that you must share, okay? So you may go ahead and share because you feel that you must or you fear the consequences, but that's not really arising from you. Really, let's say you don't want to share, but you fear the consequences of not sharing. So 
in many ways, that morality has taught you to be fake. It has taught you to be false and to betray yourself. But if I, but if I were to be sort of left to my own devices in this sort of understanding of morality, I would eventually arrive at a morality that is more authentic because it's coming from you. And eventually you, you would come, maybe you would come to the point where you would want to share out of your own self, not because you were told to do so, but because you actually wanted to do so. Now, for us, that's moral because you're actually being authentic. Okay, I see. So that's really because, like, it's it's funny because I think at the sort of the beginning of this conversation, and it has been quite some time. So I feel like I should we should be wrapping things up anyway. So like, let's go back to the beginning and tie a little bow. Um, but like at the beginning of the conversation, we're talking about how like one of the reasons why maybe a spiritismo has not had the same interest that some other traditions have had is that there isn't like this very obvious hierarchy you know, like that you might find like the OTO or something like that. But it does exactly. sound like there is still this sort of inborn sense of hierarchy in the tradition, but it's a hierarchy of consciousness or like mm-hmm. a hier- hierarchy of a kind of awareness of the authentic self, one might say. Yeah, one might say that, but how could you recognize it? You wouldn't be able to, I could, Joe Blow, you can't go and say, oh, the, yes, Joe Blow is it's at this level of consciousness, that level of consciousness, that level of consciousness right off the bat right? Meaning your average individual. However, the hierarchy of society in many other traditions, let's say the OTO or some other traditions, right? Joe Blow can be like, yeah, I'm a priest. Here's the paperwork, right? For an espiritista, you actually have to deal with that person. You actually have to form a relationship in some way or have a deep, meaningful enough of a conversation in order to be able to kind of make some assessment of maybe where they're at. But if you're still in the world of judgment, your assessment is going to be wrong. Interesting. So how would you, because like this idea of the world of judgment, you know, like the idea that you have, your assessment might be wrong because your judgment is clouded because you're doing the world of judgment. So how do you, how do you know when you can trust your own assessment? Like what kind of, when do you get the sense of like, I've reached a kind of clarity? Like how does that? You know. You know? There's no other word for it really there's no truth can never be conveyed in words but if you if you would sort of were pre that level if you were before that level wouldn't you think you know when you didn't know of course that's mo- that's called uh the majority of human the majority of being human is believing you know before you actually know thinking that you know something and you don't actually know if anyone you know who's lived life can should have a story where they jump to a conclusion thinking that they knew something or thinking that they knew something about someone else later to be proven wrong. Okay, so like there's going to be then presumably this process of thinking that you've left the realm of judgment and then realizing that you have not. Exactly. Huh, interesting. Well, that's, that's what that's makes like... it a slow, be- a slow process, but a beautiful one. Well, that seems like a good place to... To wrap this up, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and being so thoughtful in your responses to these questions. If there were, because I typically ask people at the end of these sorts of things, if there's like one last little thing you want to leave people with on the way out the door, is there something you want to sort of like give us like a final kind of message or a final bit of advice? Yeah, basically my final piece of advice is that, you know, if you're, if you're living, you don't have to live through a life of suffering 
there is basically methods to the madness. There is methods to get out of the suffering, right? Don't take suffering as a must be. But also at the same time, don't expect, which is a common mistake, that happiness is going to land in your lap. That which is most valuable costs us the most work. That which is the most valuable, which everyone wants, very few have, no matter the amount of wealth that they have, is happiness. Why if you have it is because most people expect that it's just going to land in your lap, and it's not. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate that final thought. Also, actually, if people want to like um, find out more about you, they want to find out more about what you're doing, find out more about the book, where should they go? What should they do? Okay, so the book is available everywhere. It's called Espiritismo Puerto Rican Mediumship and Magic. It's available everywhere books are sold. I'm located at hectorsalva.com as well as mysticalwork.com and about a dozen other websites. As, as well as on my Facebook, you can find me at Hungan Hector or Papa Hector Salva on TikTok, Instagram, and all the social medias. Thank you so much to Hector for that lively conversation, that engaged and engaging talk, and also for his patience with me as I kind of pressed on a few things and did some follow-ups there. Uh, this has been Witch Hassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. I will put links in the show notes to Hector's websites and where you can buy his book, and also a link to the Patreon where you can support Witch Hassle the show, and you can hear bonus content including the full version of the conversation with Al Cummins, of which I am now about to play a snippet. Um, this was a very interesting conversation for me to listen back to as I was editing it, because it kind of made me think a bit more critically about what my role is on this show. Like, am I... Should I be striving to do the sort of journalistic performance of objectivity and, like, you know, really just restraining myself that I'm mostly just here to get other people to talk about their opinions, experiences, thought processes, and so on? Or should I be registering my own position on things? Uh, because I did find myself, a few times in the conversation, being troubled by this notion of someone being in a position of authority where they sort of can say, you know, I know what you need better than you do. I know what you want better than you do. And I'm not sure why that is. I mean, I think there's, you know, the big overarching thing of just like consent. You know, it's it's a it's a crucial part of of ethics. But also I think maybe just this idea that I think I, like so many other people, came to the occult to what we might call the alternative spirituality is because, at least in part, it was a way of engaging with spiritual practice in a way that did not require submission to some kind of, you know, human authority. Like, whatever, like, relationship you develop with a god, a ghost, a spirit, what have you, like, you know, there isn't, like, a flesh-and-blood person telling you how to do it or what to do. And so I think, like, returning to this idea that, like, well, you know, there's someone you might have to trust, even when it feels wildly uncomfortable, is a... You know, it's like a huge red flag. It's very interesting. And I feel like that's probably a feel like I need to investigate myself. But this is a podcast. This isn't therapy. And actually, speaking of therapy, I guess it could just be this whole, like, psychiatric survivors movement thing where, you know, there is this long-running history of, of having to navigate the nuance that there are, you know, there is a reality to mental illness. And there are people who, you know, at least at certain points or in certain places, you know, are a danger to themselves or others because of their mental illness. But there is also this running alongside that, this like long history of 
psychiatry being used as a form of social control, like someone being told, well, you have a mental illness, and the fact that you don't agree that you have a mental illness is proof that you have the mental illness, and that being used to make someone eligible for incarceration against their will. Which I guess also, like, you know, is not completely irrelevant to this this world of spirits, given that I think there's probably a tendency among people who do not engage in spirit contact to see it as a kind of psychopathology, right? Like, I was reading a, a paper recently or an article or something for one of my, you know, psych classes, and they were talking about the double bookkeeping that people do when they are delusional, and the idea of the double bookkeeping being, like, they keep a running sort of parallel track in their mind of just, like, keeping track of, like, what is consensus reality about the situation and what is my personal reality about the situation when they differ just so that they can navigate both and if that doesn't sound like trying to live in a world of spirit i don't know what does so a lot to think about certainly anyway this has been witch hassle thank you for listening thank you to hector again for that conversation and now here's a snippet of my talk with alexander cummins about his new book about consecrating a mirror to the four kings and about so much more uh please enjoy Thank you, Robot. Um, like, I don't know if, like, people know Larry King, so this might just, like, be useless or confusing, but, um, hello! The book, I shouldn't do the impression. The book, the book is The Art of Cyprian's Mirror of Four, of Four Kings, an early modern experiment of Cyprianic conjuration. The publisher is Hidian Press. The author is here, Alexander Cummins. Alexander Cummins, hello. Hi, Cooper. It's great to be back. How you doing? I'm doing um, exactly as well as we just discussed uh, a few minutes ago, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, uh, the stray dogs bark, the caravan marches on, and hopefully I won't be dead next week. Hooray. Hooray indeed. Well, how bad can being dead be, honestly? Uh, <laughs> any, actually, opening question, Al, how bad is being dead? How bad could it be, honestly? <laughs> what happens when we die? Uh, amazing, yeah. Um, I was I was just uh, marking the the there's a tradition of marking the uh, death date of uh, uh, beloved British author Terry Pratchett um, mm. by uh, by saying his name and uh, uh, there's a there's an in joke about if we keep saying his name that you know uh, uh, someone never dies as long as their their name is said and this is from a uh, uh, a specific like in joke within one of his novels about um, an internet like device the Backs that gets built on a disc world. Um, and so there are lots of like nerdy, um, uh, uh, like uh, 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 tech, uh, real world tech jokes uh, put within this like comedy fantasy novel. But uh, he mute one of the characters muses that like with these names flying between these like uh, clax towers, uh, this kind of um, semaphore machine basically, that these names are going back and forth along the line of these, these towers that, um, it seemed, you know, if, if you were going to be dead, you might as well fly between towers rather than just lie underground. So it seems there are options, right? Yeah, spirits of the air or, you know, words of the air, air words. Uh, what is it to be alive anyway, except just air is happening? Right, right, right. Uh, uh, Hayden uses this wonderful phrase, uh, in society of the airs, uh, I think in, in society of the winds as well, where he's talking about the admixture of um, genii and uh, the souls of dead people and various other aerial spirits. Um, this is also a little angle on like planetary necromancy. I've been pulling at the threads off for a fair while. Um, this, this wider notion that, um, or this, this kind of folk Catholic eschatology really, I suppose, which kind of has space that, sure, your 
soul is wandering off somewhere, but something of you sticks around and haunts the things that you loved, the places you loved, um, the things you did in life. And if you are particularly good at them, the place responds in some way. And so there's this idea that the dead can be promoted uh, and can be the souls of particularly excellent uh, people, uh, Hayden says, uh, might end up with this kind of promotion where they end up as, as they, they become a genii, they become a genius uh, of either a place or of a, a concept or thing, uh, which definitely helps explain a bunch of like practical ritual experience outside of, you know, uh, uh, abstract theories about, you know, what happens when we die. Uh, it certainly explains why when I talk to, you know, a fair bunch of uh, magicians that do planetary magic, like sometimes you, you are, you are, you're putting an appeal into to say Mars for a protection spirit and the spirit turns up and it's like, Oh yeah, I'm totally a martial spirit. But also I used to be a, 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 de a person. I was a dead, I was a dead guy once. I was a dead soldier or something. Um, and that's really interesting to me that the, that the planets take care of their children, some of their children beyond death and that indeed you can be elevated to stick around. Uh, Hayden likens it to, um, uh, he says like, like old men on the, on the bowling green who can't play anymore, but will aid and maybe even abet the, the young men uh, who, are, who are now bowling on the green. I've, I've described that to some other necromancers and they've been like, that's, that's kind of patronizing. I'm not sure I like that, but this, it's a very pastoral image, but this idea of like, where do you go? Like when, like this motion of like, places are haunted by the people that love them and the, and, and the, and, and the places love those people in some way, this, this, this cosmic sympathy thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, like that also just the idea of like, when we think, when we think of like the passions as being able to flood the porous nature of just surfaces, right? Like it makes sense that that would coalesce somehow back into the most passionate people who have flooded those porous surfaces or some version of like, you know, it's like, if we have a lot of energy, we need to put it into like something that we can understand. Why wouldn't the energy itself be like, well, you know, right. you know what this is like, that guy, remember that guy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it becomes precedent again. It becomes, and not just citing of legal precedent or, or citing a precedent, ritual precedent in a kind of legalistic manner. It's that you are, that story is being told again, or that story is still being told right now. And, and it's going to require different actors across time, stepping into certain roles and things. Uh, we, we, we've talked before about, uh, uh, Cadmus's uh, uh, wonderful stuff on uh, how on the on, on Hercules's lion skin belt, you know, uh, yeah, and the, and the difference between are you are you disguising yourself and are you trying to fool a bunch of spirits that are meant to be really smart and that you're working with because they're smart, um, in which case why are you working with them if they're so easily fooled, or are you playing the part of Hercules and if you don't have the lion skin belt, people won't know that's the part you're playing, right? There's a difference between and again that's not like kayfabe, that's not like the spirits are like nudge nudge wink wink king solomon but it yeah. is like you are you are stepping into that ritual narrative that 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 set of patterns playing out you know yeah totally i mean like in like it's funny because there was that psychological research about um i feel like we're getting wildly off topic but that's fine i'm having fun <laughs> um where like uh you know the idea of um disrupting scripts as a means of changing behavior so uh mm -hmm. the classic sort of dramatic example is uh someone was in their backyard with, um, I think it was like, you know, two couples having dinner together in the backyard of somebody's house. And um, someone burst in with a gun and started holding them hostage. And instead of like, because it was a psychologist who just like happened to like have the special skill of like, I've been reading neuroscience for a lot. I uh, was like, ah, I'm going to offer this man a glass of wine. And just like completely disrupting the initial script of like, you yell, I am scared 
in a way that was not hostile or like actually diffused hostility, like completely changed the scenario that the person sort of left, which I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, I feel like for legal purposes, I have to say, don't try that necessarily. Right, right, right. Um, the specific example is not the point, the, the, the general principle of like de-escalation yeah, yeah. by pattern interruption. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder about that in terms of, okay, I can get us back on track. Pattern interruption in conjuration mm-hmm. uh, from, a, from a couple angles on this. So I was asked recently on um, uh, talking to, to, to uh, a friend about whether or not long conjurations or short conjurations were better. And my argument was like, depends what you're doing. Um, right. And not just like, it's more complicated cop out, but uh, it depends how you are. For me, a conjuration is always a, a, an interaction of some kind. Uh, well, a, a good conjuration, right? An effic- efficacious conjuration. And so the longer ones, the short ones are, you say a thing, you get some sense of spirit response back. Uh, there's, there's, there's some of this stuff in like 18th century, like folk necromancy stuff I'm looking at at the moment where there are specific Barbarous words, spirit names, something along with nomina, Barbara, uh, Vocus Magicae around, uh, here's what you say when the spirit turns up, then here's what you say. Like, it's all like kind of micromanaged a little bit more. It's broken yeah, down yeah. into more of a flow chart. And if the spirit can't speak yet, then you say this thing and that'll let it speak. And then you say this thing to like stop it speaking if it's going on too long. So, it, so there are versions of, of short conjurations that are generally like flow charty, right? If the spirit hasn't turned up yet, say this another seven times, but it'll probably turn up within those seven times, that kind of thing. So there's flow charty elements of like, if, then uh and then the longer conjurations for me can can often be talked about in terms of like oh they are designed to put us into a particular modality of 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 consciousness or altered state of consciousness or whatever we want to call that Uh, and i think that's um that's that's not untrue but for me what's more useful is being able to tell when when something in me is like speaking the word, particular words more fervently or uh, noticing. And again, I think a, a, a little background in uh, performance poetry has, has been helpful of noticing when I'm doing something I didn't expect to do as I'm reading it. But there's parts where I'm like, I know I need to go louder here. I need to go faster here. I need to go slower here. But then there are parts where like, why am I, why am I speeding up at this part? Why am I feeling something at this point? For me, the longer conjurations, I was like, I, you know, it's it's a rope that the spirit is pulling back on as well. That there's mm-hmm. a there's an exchange going on, and that that doesn't so much that does kind of interrupt the pattern of like I am going to say a thing, and the, like if I say this long thing perfectly, then I'll have entered the passcode correctly, and then the universe unlocks. As opposed to the conjuration is also a means of discerning spirit presence and contact and and communication to some degree as well, like feeling when it's, when it's here, but it's unstable and requires more things to focus it when it's, when it's focused, but uh, needs to, to, yeah, that, that, that there's a, there's an attending to the, to the relationship and to the, the modalities by which these, these spirits can, can come out. And I think we also see that with uh, stuff around the four Kings, especially with the switching between very supplicatory, you are so great, oh, you technically fallen angel and therefore still type kind of technically angelic versus uh more commanding like i'm i'm the conjurer i i drew this circle and you're in my house now and you will do what i say 